the importance of thinking horizontally and melodically in choral music, an interview with Owen Park, founder and artistic director of Jezwaldo Six, composer and professional singer, and a composer profile on Don Carlo Jezwaldo. This is Early Music Monday. You know those memes where it's like it shows someone's face and they're outrageously excited and then the caption says, every time the altos get the melody? <laughs> it's such like a stereotype that the altos get hosed on uh, getting to sing anything interesting. Sometimes it happens to the tenors too. The basses have these jumping fifths and octaves all over the place. And the sopranos get this really nice melodic line. I don't know where that came from. Actually, I could probably... I didn't do research on that part of the show today, but I could probably hazard an educated guess onto where that came from. Um, what we would call common practice music theory. Uh, stuff like Mozart, which I'm, I will fangirl for Mozart all day. But I think that that mindset and choral music going forward, uh, with exceptions, obviously, if we talk really nuanced, but uh, contemporary choral music seems to be sort of vertically imagined first. And contemporary choral musicians, uh, especially the first person you think of when you think of cool harmonies is Eric Whitaker. Um, Those cool chord clusters and really tall, expansive chords. And I mean, it's impressive and it just makes your ears dance. But if we lose the idea of singing melodically, then we've lost kind of really the foundation of choral singing and really what makes choral singing so fun. Even composers like Eric Whitaker don't abandon melodic line and counterpoint. There is a great sense of line in those moments, even though to our ears as a listener or as a singer even, it might be somewhat conceivable that it was thought primarily vertically or harmonically. But the line is so important. It's taking a 16th century counterpoint class and talking about, you know, first species counterpoint and this nerdy is like the nerdiest title of a class. 16th century counterpoint. We talked about first species and second and it just but I'm a super nerd for that stuff and it it really taught me as I learn as you go through, you know, first species and second species and third species, and you start to realize that throughout the book that we talked about by Newt Jepson, the horizontal line is always the primary goal and always the starting point. There's so many rules about what's consonance and what's dissonance and where each of those are allowed and where they're not allowed. But several times in the book that we used, it mentions how the line cannot be sacrificed for the vertical alignment. 
and how to write a good melody. And so I think that's what makes Renaissance music so appealing is that everyone has the melody. Everyone. At some point or another, everyone has the melody. And even when you don't have the most important melody or the beginning of a point of imitation, you still have something that's melodic and fun to sing. And you, you're phrase-shaping and accenting and pulling away. You're coming out of the texture and falling back behind, you know, into covered by the texture. Like every couple of beats, there's moments that here's the altos pop out and then here's the sopranos and the basses have this cool line and then the tenors get this cool heroic line. And, and that's why singers love Renaissance music and anything that's melodic. Any song, any choral work ever that gives a certain part melodic line that's interesting, that part will love that song. There's a piece um, off the top of my head, I'm trying to remember, In the Night We Shall Go In by Iman, Iman Ramish, I believe. And the altos have the melody most of the time, and it's really pretty. Cello solo, very contemporary, really beautiful. More than anyone else the semester I performed that, the altos freaking loved that song because they got the line, they got the melody. So when you're all doing that simultaneously, oh, that's why it's the best. That's why Renaissance singing and early music is so much fun to sing. We can have a separate discussion about why then, how do you convey that to the audience? Because for the audience, they haven't experienced that. So that's why there's sometimes this disconnect between, well, this choir loves this song because they all get this cool melodic line, but that doesn't get communicated to the audience very well. But we'll talk about that another time. And we've talked about it before, and we'll, we, I mean, again, I'm always looking for ideas to make this more accessible to the audience. Now, how do we apply that to our rehearsal and, and uh, our performances? I think making sure that you sing as the conductor or if you're studying the piece or whatever, that you sing every line by itself in your own octave. And when you do that, you'll find these cool little nuggets, these cool moments and be like, ooh, bring this out or ooh, bring this out and help, you know, if there's a dotted rhythm, okay, decay on the dot a little bit or whatever, right? You you decay on the dot so it has this kind of daylight between it, and you can convey that to the singers so that way they can sing it that way, and it gets brought to life immediately from this boring kind of cacophony of just wall of sound all the time to like moments of bursts of melody coming out from different spots in the choir all the time. I think it's really cool. But when we get caught in, ooh, tune this chord, boom. Tune this chord, boom. If we are thinking that way only, we're missing a lot of the point. And again, that's not to say that we shouldn't do that. We, I mean, out-of-tune chords are atrocious, and the audience instantly is lost from you and out of the moment. But if we are thinking of line and then and then finding arrival points together as a group instead of just the whole thing is vertical thinking. I think that will lift early music off the page and 
music from other time periods, thinking of how each line fits into the, to the phrase and into the texture. So we'll go now to our interview with Owen Park. Owen Park was the organ scholar at Trinity College Choir at Cambridge, and he's a really prolific composer. There's a CD of his works performed by Trinity College Choir at Cambridge, conducted by Stephen Layton, and his works are all over the place. He sings in Tenebrae and the Aura Singers and several of the professional choirs in London, and he started Jeswaldo Six, and I'll let him tell the story of how Jeswaldo Six came about um, and their story, and they are gaining in popularity and like so fast. They are the new thing. So if you haven't already, be sure to check out Jeswaldo Six. But uh, here's our interview featuring Owen Park. Welcome, Owen. Thank you for, for joining us. I have been curious ever since I met you and heard the Jeswaldo Six as to the story behind why Jeswaldo. I mean, I love Jeswaldo, but uh, that's such a, I, I, I would love to hear your thoughts about why that chose to be your name. Yeah, it's a, uh, well, it, it's, I guess it's a funny story. So um, the group was founded about uh, six years ago now in Cambridge, it's, you know, beautiful idyllic town uh, in England. Um, and it's very, uh, it's a very famous city for its university, but also for its choirs. Um, but a lot of the choirs are uh, sort of quite big, you know, 20, 30 people. One thing that uh, it was nice to be able to do while at university was to explore making music with um, smaller forces. So actually, you know, thinking about one person on each vocal line as some of this music was conceived. And so we approached some music by an Italian composer called Carlo Gesserato for the first time with really fresh ears. Um, mm. So it was exciting for us to perform and to, to rehearse this music that we'd never sung before. Um, and especially not in, you know, in that place at that time, it yeah. all just sort of came together really nicely. And so uh, the, the group had to have a name because we were putting on concerts in the city and we had to put a poster up, you know, to advertise it, to get people to come. So we just sort of, you know, we had to put something on the posters. That's really how it happened. So it wasn't any sort of great planning involved, but we enjoyed that first experience. And so kind of just did more concerts really. Um, and, it, and it sort of snowballed from there. Um, I, I think that's super interesting because as I've talked to several other conductors of these professional choirs and they all say the, say the same thing, like, well, we just kind of did it and it stuck and we just kept going. What, what do you feel like was so captivating about Jeswaldo's music that made you want to perform it? Well, I think that part of it was that sense of ownership that each each singer had over their line. So that was that was really exciting. But also coming together and singing music that, I mean, music of the uh, 
English court edition is, you know, it's very much ingrained in a lot of singers from this country. You know, we sang it from a young age, a lot of us. And it's amazing music. You know, don't get me wrong. This repertory is just, and it, you, you can't get enough of it. Um, there's so much music. But to do something from a different country, which is harmonically even more adventurous than, you know, the likes of Talis or Bird and... Uh, you know the lines by themselves they just make no sense but when you put it together as a, as a whole group it, it it does completely and that that was so exciting but i think i think the, the great thing is that that music brought us together but it by no means defined the group so yeah. it was very much the sort of first you know stepping stone on to what we now do which is this whole sort of mixture of renaissance and contemporary uh, you know, commissioning new works discovering old pieces you know it, it, I, I guess it's that what we did take from Carla Jezwell's music was the sense of adventure um yeah. the, the sense of you know something that we hadn't done before and then just trying to build on that yeah what are some things that that's really fascinating because I growing up in so a little bit more about me like I didn't grow up singing i grew up matching pitch to the radio with my dad and that's about it but i grew up playing sports and so my first introduction was to choir i was already 13. and the american choral tradition that i came from is very much um kind of performance based and very secular based and you rehearse a couple of pieces for several months and then you do a concert and then that's it in the school system and a lot of it it's like contemporary music heavy so for me, the discovery of old music was this was this new thing. And I had to kind of make these connections of how is this related? In your mind, growing up in the English tradition and singing a lot of that old repertoire, what are some things that you notice as being connectors between the old music and maybe some contemporary repertoire? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, at the moment, there's a sort of whole trend of composers looking back to music of yeah. the renaissance because because it was such a a sort of prolific time um yeah. i mean especially in this country when you got the sort of uh, these um sort of religious um sort of factions fighting against each other and the composers having to turn their hand to all sorts of different requirements at, at right. the same time you know uh and i think that that kind of Bred this um, real flexibility um, of the music so that one composer could write in many, many different styles. Um, and I think that that meant that when I was growing up as a chorister, I didn't really think of the music as old and new. Yeah. I was, I was looking at it more as sort of, you know, it, I, I suppose some kind of lineage was there for sure. You, you knew when something was old because the dates are on it and you'd understand yeah. that. But you wouldn't necessarily think this is ancient history. You know, you'd think, oh, okay, well, so this is how this music then evolved into that piece and then that piece. So, you, so you'd see a bit more of a progression between them. Yeah. And that's, and that, I think that's amazing because, again, that concept and that experience didn't happen for me for a long, even until really my master's degree. Uh, my undergraduate conductor was brilliant, but he was much more focused on contemporary. So seeing those connections was. It, it, you're right it was like a whole other world of styles and, and traditions so so then speaking to that as a composer 
what things do you do? I mean, because you talk about thinking about it more in terms of composer styles versus like old history versus new. What are some specific things you incorporate in your compositions that you feel are inspired by some of those, you know, British Renaissance masters? Yeah, I think it's quite easy uh, when you're writing for choir to, I, I suppose, think of it as one kind of unit, you know, so you get a lot of pieces that really are quite chordal. And you get these lush harmonies that are built up because lots of voices singing together, singing lots of different notes, but kind of in close proximity. And you get this amazing sound. But one of the things that the Renaissance composers did really well is they took each individual line and they were able to sort of carve out, to, to weave these different patterns that together made a whole. So that they were really, it, it's quite, it is quite easy, I find anyway, to write music that's very... Um, kind of on the page is just sort of black and white. You know, everything moves together. Yeah. And and that sounds good. It always sounds good. Right. But the thing about the Renaissance composers is they didn't do that. They thought about the lines individually first and then coming together. And yeah. then, that, you know, that sort of developed into counterpoint. And then, you know, I think it's there's a real art to that writing that we need to, you know... Um, understand and and work out why it was so important to them and what we can build on today yeah well what would you say are what are some reasons why you think it was important to them you you pose that i think that's super fascinating yeah yeah well i I suppose uh, i mean it kind of goes back to what i was saying about the um the different uh interpretations of the christian religion at the time so you've got the I mean, the the Protestants who were saying that, you know, the music had to be on the whole quite simple so that you could hear the words. And then the Catholics who said, actually, the music is a sort of is supposed to be there to glorify and therefore it should be really florid and, and, and be as beautiful as possible. Yeah. And I suppose that someone like Talit, who who had to write for both styles, was was really a master at managing to... I suppose if you're a singer, you're looking at his music and you enjoy singing a piece like If You Love Me, for example, which is very simple on the surface, but actually is one of his best love works because yeah. it sort of tells a real story. Yeah. And then you take something like, I don't know, a, a Sushipé, Cuesta Domine, or a Lot Corbanto or something, which is much more intricate, and you think, well, what are the similarities here? Well, the vocal lines are still really interesting, but it's the way that they interact with each other. Yeah. Um, and to write a piece like Lot Corbanto, I think is... Is probably harder, right? Because because well, partly because it's in more parts, but also because you're trying to build this framework from a point where each line must, in and of itself, be a kind of beautiful melody, yeah. and and have its own shape and structure. So if you took it off the page, the singer could almost make a piece out of it themselves. Whereas if you love me, if you sing the bass part, it's incredibly boring. <laughs> right, right. And it ha- and you have to have the other voices, so it's really interesting to see how the he was sort of doing two different things, you know, all these years ago. Oh, I think that's so. Fa- I I did not know or really connect the intricacies of. I mean, I knew about the the religious turmoil and that composers were yeah 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 were flip flopping, but I didn't realize that you know it, those generalities. But thinking back on specific pieces by both Bird and Talis and all those people. Yeah, the the English ones are much more clearly, like you can hear every word 
every moment it's spoken um, and it's lots more homophonic motion and yeah it's really cool <sighs> man so saying that then this is kind of a segue into kind of ensemble size yeah um i'm sure you've done lots of conducting with larger groups and conducting with smaller groups what are some things that you've run into in terms of challenges performing early music between the two groups like challenges with a small group challenges with a big group so the the difficulties are there are some that are the same there are problems that are universal for choirs and singers and there are some things that are very different so i think well taking a larger group for example i mean the very basics of you know if you have four people on a line that is let's call it soloistic for want of a better word you know it's got a large compass uh there are many places where you could breathe in it um you want to do different things with the text you know it's trying to unify those approaches so that you don't lose the sense of it being one line so it doesn't become four interpretations of the same line at the same time which then makes it basically you know it's just a different piece so right right um so so that's that's the main thing i think with with a larger group is just and and it's not about trying to get everyone to sing exactly the same thing at the same time because then actually you lose the wonderful colors that these voices together can create so it's a sort of balance between um blend and uh individuality that you, you somewhere in the middle i think is is kind of where i land yeah. and then working with a smaller group it's more because actually you can only say so much to an individual singer about the way that they're singing before it becomes kind of a bit too personal almost it becomes you know you either like what they're doing or you don't and that's not really i think what by the time you've got to that point if you're working with a group of singers and it's one to a part you probably have chosen them for a certain reason and actually you're getting into more about the the way that they interact with the other lines mm-hmm. so it's about as a conductor then seeing the bigger picture and you know just thinking about everything before they get singing so thinking about the tempo thinking about the places where they might breathe and showing the other singers kind of where that's going to be i'm kind of just thinking ahead a bit more and thinking about the whole structure rather than just the individual moments yeah and I think that that really is profound, especially to find the, the balance, right? What you said, you don't want to like micromanage these singers who have like trained, like honed their craft, but you don't want to just let them, <laughs> you know. No, and exactly because everyone, everyone will go in a slightly different direction and the conductor's job is just to try and bring everyone's interpretations and points of view to a, to a sort of a, a common resting place where actually the audience will then understand what's going on. Right. And I think, and I think there'd be lots of choirs that have experimented with being as free as possible with sure. the sound. Um, and I think that that is really interesting, but for me, for, especially with early music, when it is so much about the interplay between the voices, then it is really important to have a sense of how it all comes together. So kind of, you know, thinking about what the finished article is going to look like before you set off. Yeah. So with that kind of makes me think of with Jeswaldo six, there are some videos and and performances I've seen of you guys. Sometimes you conduct them and sometimes you don't. What are some things that go into factors? I guess I should say that go into those decisions and what's, what do the singers do then differently 
when when you're conducting versus when you're not well i think it's really interesting um and it, it'd be a question for them although actually I, i've heard them answer this question so i can kind of filter this back through which is quite <laughs> nice um yeah but i think sometimes it comes down to you know the repertoire so if it's modern music and we do an awful lot of that stuff then uh often it's quite helpful to have somebody especially when it's something like ligety when it's in multiple time signatures and that sort of thing just kind of bringing it all together and kind of you know how if you're recording a cd you have somebody listening in a box you know just 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 kind of going well, the conductor's obviously trying to make music with it and the singers are, do, are doing their thing, but actually just someone to sit back and go, what's happening here? What yeah. can we improve? That That's kind of, when you get to the stage, which we're at, fortunately, with people that are really, you know, high-functioning choral ensemble musicians, right. then actually the conductor's job is not just giving a beat. Right. It's, it's, it's so much more than that. And actually, uh, you know, for if it was just giving a beat, then actually either you could give the first one and walk off stage or actually you, you needn't be there at all. Cause as you say, sometimes I um, go in and sing. I think one of the strengths of, of our group and our programming is the fact that we don't just do every piece with the same forces. We yeah. wouldn't just do, you know, a piece in four parts. We wouldn't make it in six parts just to fit on stage. We would do what the composer wanted and we'd make a real decision about how we put these pieces next to each other. And I think we enjoy moving there's the sort of oral perception around for the audience so it's not just you know six yeah. people singing the same thing it's very much kind of how can we balance this program with the voices that we have yeah I, and i i think that that um because you, you're a young guy and, and i'm relatively young i think that's something that i don't know i've talked to several people in kind of our generation and they've all been saying this, especially during this kind of like pandemic time, it's like trying to rethink what a choir concert, like a choral concert looks like. It can't just be black shirts, suits, black dresses, stand, sing, walk, the end. And, and giving the audience a more complete experiences, I think, really important. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something we've been doing since before it was cool, I think. Right, um, right. Yeah, but partly because uh, the repertoire that we do with a lot of sacred music really does call for a bit of bit of movement, especially through plain chant and things like that. You know, it's not it's not just music to be sung at people. It's meant to be kind of experienced in some way. And I think that with the ecclesiastical buildings, you know, it's really cool to be able to sing from different spaces because they were designed for that. You know, we're so lucky in this country to have buildings that are, you know, six, seven hundred years old yeah. and they're still standing and the music sounds yeah. just as good in there as yeah. it ever did. So it's it, we're very lucky to have that. And I think it's such a wasted opportunity if we treat them like, you know, a, con a brand new concert hall. We've got to, got to find ways of using yeah. the buildings and programming with them in mind. Yeah, and that's so great. Yeah. I, I'm jealous all the time. It's like, oh. Yeah, yeah. We, we are lucky with <laughs> yeah. that. I mean, they, they cost a lot of money to maintain, but apart from that, it's good. Yeah, I'm sure. I can only yeah. imagine. <laughs> so when you're putting the program together, not just necessarily the movement, what are some other things you take into consideration from the conductor's point of view, from the singer's point of view, from the audience point of view? What are some things you juggle around? So... 
recently I was putting together some programs because I was thinking, you know, I, I want to let people know what we're going to perform next year because I want people to book us for concerts. You know, it, it, it's right. tough at the moment because, right. but um, then I, I kind of, I, I was in two minds really because I've never really done it that I tell people what we're going to perform before we know where we're going to do it. So for instance, if someone right. says, you know, I want to take you to France and do a concert, well, I go, well, where are we? And what's the building like? And how many people does it seat? And can we move? You know, and and it's so much more than just we're going to sing this formula of pieces. It's it's definitely a kind of, it's almost a conversation with you know the promoter and the venue, and then with ourselves to try and work out what is going to work best on that day. And what what else have we been singing in the previous few weeks? And what's going to be fresh? And what can we learn from it? Um, yeah. I I, I the, you know there there are lots of choirs that do really well on performing the same music in a season and then moving on yeah. and, I, and I really don't like working like that right it's just not, I, I like to be kind of doing some things that we know really well and then bedding in some new stuff and constantly kind of changing things up yeah so that there's a freshness for the audience there's a freshness for us so we haven't just performed the same program 30 times that year right I I, I, I I, I just don't like working like that. I think it's really important to kind of keep rejuvenating, keep commissioning, keep discovering, yeah, uh, and, and and you know tailor a program depending on where we're where we're performing. Yeah, I think that's that's really cool. And as somebody who, you know, so I, I kind of have my foot in public education camp where we have the same auditorium, and then I have my foot in this professional choir, Sound of Ages, and we have like maybe four, five, like ecclesiastically aurally pleasing spaces to perform in the state of Utah. That's like it. <laughs> so <Yeah>. like, <laughs> so to, but there's some really, I think there's some really applicable things from what you just said that can be applied anywhere. You, you ask yourself, what's the date? Okay. Are there any specific pieces written that are significant? What, how do we feel? Do we want to bring back you rehearse a piece for a short time and then you maybe put it away. Do we want to bring this back? Do we want to, I think there's yeah. different approaches that we can learn from this professional choir approach yeah. uh, and kind of tailor it to this kind of public school setting. So it's good for the singers as well to, to keep fresh mm -hmm. uh, to, uh, and to keep, uh, and also to feel in a concert that's comfortable. If every single piece is new, then it, it's hard work, isn't it? You know, because yeah. people are nervous. <laughs> and, and and like singing is so much about kind of, you know, technique as much as kind of muscle memory and anything we can do to, to balance out old, new, not just, you know, Renaissance contemporary, but I actually mean in terms of what people know. Mm. Um, I think that's really important because then you, I think you get a better product. Yeah. So as a singer, because I know you're in Tenebrae and I saw you in the Aura Singers uh, Speminolium thing just a couple weeks ago. And as a singer, what are some things? Uh, I have so many questions as a singer because I, I, yeah. anyway, it, singing was rough for me for a while and it's right. like starting to figure it out. But yeah, yeah. when you, when you are singing so much, what do you do to stay fresh and not like completely just wither on the stage and your vocal folds turn into spaghetti and <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> well I, I think it's interesting I mean and there are people that have been doing it for a lot longer than me but I think in general if the, the hardest thing was actually sometimes the, the schedules so you know um, 
I guess the equivalent for you would be sort of traveling, you know, hopping across America somewhere, but we were doing, yeah. you know, in Europe, you know, so, so we yeah. nip over to Germany for a day or something. And, and actually that, that way of working is really not very satisfactory. I mean, for a number of reasons, I mean, environmentally, it's a bit of a disaster. Yeah. Um, and also in terms of um, actually like vocal health, you know, if you're getting on a plane at 5.30 in the morning and then you're trying to do a concert 13 hours later, but having taken a flight, a three-hour coach journey, and then uh, you're just not in the best shape. Right. So so actually, that was the hardest thing. And, and I think that it actually, the, the more singing that I was doing, the the easier it was because you you wouldn't have to kind of, you know, keep warming up the voice to a point. It would actually just sort of stay there like a trained muscle would. You know, mm. you're talking about sport earlier. I think there's a mm. lot of that which is applicable to singing or to touring as a musician. Yeah. Um, but actually, some of the schedules were, were were so punishing that it meant that you couldn't give your best, and then you got frustrated with that, and then it's a sort of vicious circle. So it's yeah. it, it, it it's it's tough because because everyone's trying to make a living, you know. Right. Um, and 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 the industry keeps changing, and and this year especially, I mean, you know, things have just gone completely crazy. So we're gonna <laughs> have to gonna have to see what twenty twenty one looks like. Yeah. Exactly. So. Oh man, yeah, and and I think whether you're singing, whether you're traveling, like I mean, I taught my seventh and eighth graders when I was at a junior high before I was at the high school, and I met with those kids forty five minutes every day, and it's like they're just like, I mean, it's like them trying to play what you would call football or us soccer on stilts, yeah. like they just have yeah, no yeah, idea, yeah. like newborn giraffes. <laughs> like, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's like every but, but they've got to start somewhere though, haven't they? Yeah. And, they, and I bet after, you know, a few weeks, a few months, you see the progress and they'll feel it. Yeah. And that, that every day, it's like you said, it came to a, to a point where it was like, okay, they're starting to really like get a handle. Yeah. Or they don't have to warm up as much. No. And, that, and that's why, you know, the, the choristers, uh, the girls and boys up and down the country are very lucky here because, that there are there are those opportunities to learn to be, uh, the you know the equivalent of a professional singer, you know yeah. by the age of twelve, yeah. um, and 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 that's so cool. Yeah. So, um, what is your experience when you're singing for a different, you know, all these different conductors like Nigel Short and Susie Digby, and I'm sure there's a myriad of others that I haven't seen you in. What are some things that not I don't necessarily want to put you in an awkward situation of like calling out specific conductors, but what are some things that you find that they do that you as a singer love and some other things that are a little bit frustrating or like, Ooh, that's kind of tough. Those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I think that a lot of it is, is extra musical, as I said before. So, you know, if the, if if you've had a long day, then it's difficult to put yourself in a good frame of mind, and therefore anything anyone says, you could find irksome, and that's just the way right. it is. So it kind of doesn't matter who it is, to be honest. But yeah. you know, I think I think the main thing, the, the the sort of people that you know you go back and work for again are those that sort of greet you with a you know, a, a nice smile and a hello, and kind of you know a bit of conversation, and then then you get down to you know making music, and then it's. Uh, and, and you know it doesn't extend beyond the rehearsal so i think that's quite important in a professional choir as well if it, especially when it's one that you're sort of turning up to do it almost like a contracted job for you know you're being employed for your professional services and then beyond that point your association in some way kind of ends 
yeah. You know, obviously, with Jesse Arda six, it's mu- we're much more invested in that because it's because of the way that you know, it's a smaller group and the way it sort of operates. But um, in something like Tenebrae, when it's when it's larger forces and there's lots more people working for it, um, then th- there's a sort of different expectation, I suppose. Um, but the exciting thing about you know working for these different groups is the different repertoire that they perform as well, and I think it's really important that in you know if you look at the london scene that there are different groups doing different things with different composers and you know we're we're really not just showcasing within london and the uk what you know this country does but looking a bit more broadly as well because you know if you're watching what we do in london you know from the usa then that's that's great and it's kind of important to have that kind of outward looking thing you know so we're not just doing the same thing over and over again keep recreating and and I think that that's again like think these a lot of what you're saying resonates so well within me because I think that keeping it new and keeping it fresh is so important for the singer's perspective because yeah BYU singers is a is one of the elite um, collegiate groups here and I sang it and for some days we're just like I don't even want to sing this again like are you yeah. but but. And you can take that to professional. No, and sometimes you've got to sing it again because because actually it's not just about you. It's also about training the younger singers, the newer singers that are coming in. Right. You know, it's about teaching them what you know, and that and that sometimes feels so obvious that you just don't want to do it again. <laughs> and that, again, that's when the the conductor comes in. You know, in terms of the programming, it's you've got to have a bit of familiarity so that people that have been there before kind of don't feel as though they're having to constantly be on their guard and learn new stuff, but also they want to be stretched. And that's a real skill, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I don't, I have not been thinking of my sound of ages group. Not my, I hate saying my, I should not have said that. It sounded weird as it came out of my mouth, but (laughs) the sound of ages group, I, I haven't thought of it that way. Every project is like new music and a new, thing so I, i'm yeah, brilliant to try that because it i think that does make the singers feel safe and feel like they can at least come back to this if they bomb this piece over here that's new okay at least we can come back to this and then have another crack at it you know going forward so yeah. um well i could ask you tons more questions about you know specific composers and that you take influence from and the music the, the music business side of things and the, the singing side of things i think that you are a rare professional in the fact that you have these kind of specialties in different areas whereas most of us kind of pick one thing and go with it so um but it would take <laughs> a little too long yeah <laughs> for what this interview would take but i'd love to have one again something you know Six months. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, that sounds lovely. Yeah, I'd love to come back. Yeah. Okay. We now take a journey to another world. There's a man, he's consumed with his passion for music. He can't think, he can't function in society without music. 
he's depressed unless he's performing or composing music. He grows up. He gets married to his first cousin. It was the Renaissance. It was okay, apparently. They had a son. After a while, he suspects his wife of infidelity. Comes up with a plan. Lays in wait to entrap his wife. He peeks through. He sees his wife and her lover in the very act. His rage fills him and he kills them both. And, lucky for him, killing your wife who has disrespected your honor was not technically against the law. So, that's nice. He retreats to his estate more in the country. He spends most of his time composing and performing music. He marries again. But being somewhat disenchanted, doesn't spend much time with her. He's abusive. He's unfaithful. Just the picture of marital bliss. Now, here's where the story gets interesting. His second wife accuses him and his lovers of witchcraft, and the lovers, the mistresses, are charged with witchcraft involving sorcery and love potions. Cue Harry Potter music. Bum, bum, ba, dum, ba. Two women were charged and convicted. He is further depressed whenever he is not engulfed in music. His son then dies. Later in his life, he then dies in isolation in his estate in Jesualdo, Italy. Dun-dun! What a great Netflix original. Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, I don't care, Hollywood, somebody, anybody listening to my voice right now who knows somebody needs to pitch this story of Carlo Jesualdo to play, or to, to be a show. It needs to be a TV show, though, because it's too much to tell in one movie. Maybe like a miniseries, you know? It sounds kind of dark and creepy and messed up, but man, what a story. I think Jeswaldo is the most fascinating character in early music. And he'd have to be played by Willem Dafoe, the guy who plays the Green Goblin in the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man, super creepy looking dude, or Robert Nepper, who, if you've ever seen Prison Break, he plays Teabag, super creepy, have to be played by someone like that. Oh, it would just be, oh man, it would be so gnarly. And the soundtrack would be like his music reorchestrated somehow. I just think it would be amazing. So if anybody knows people, someone hook that up. Okay, on to his music. Now, I don't know if I would, this is another composer similar to our discussion on Akagem, where I don't know if I'd classify any of his music in the quote-unquote 
beginning level. You have his madrigals and secular music, and then you have his sacred music. So his canciones sacre are collections of sacred music, and that's like an Italian madrigal just slightly elevated on, like, caffeine. Then you take his tenebrae responsories, and those are like, you take those that caffeine and you pump it with some roids on steroids. Then his Italian madrigals are literally, like, on top of those steroids, you add military-grade LSD, or like a drug cocktail of Poulenc, Monteverdi, Victoria, and Schoenberg, and you get Carlo Gesualdo. I mean, short, jarring phrase lengths. He'll just change modes in the middle of a phrase, sometimes in the middle of a word, by adding chromatic notes to one part. The textures are all over the place. There'll be these slow-moving lines, then all of a sudden you have these really quick 16th notes. It's like the Sopranos are having seizures. But it's so moving and so expressive and so beautiful in its own right. Ugh, man. And I just love it. It's so captivating from the instant a Gesualdo piece starts. I'm just entranced. I could listen to Gesualdo the whole CD straight through, and it's like, where did the time go? So adding a Gesualdo piece can really make a program come alive, especially because it's so different and so unique. So if I had to pick a beginning level one, a kind of a simpler one, I would pick his sacred piece, Inte Domine Spevari. It's four-part SATB, and it's much more conservative than his madrigals. The ranges aren't that extreme. It's not too long. It's much more formally clear, clearer sections. And it still has a bit of that, that chromatic Gesualdo flair, but it's very tame. It's a great work. It's a great piece. Um, if we go to the intermediate level, uh, I would p- pick something like Ovos Omnes. Now, they, uh, Gesualdo is one of the few composers who, from the Renaissance, that we have his full set of tenebrae responsories to be performed during Holy Week. Victoria has a full set. Uh, I believe Delasso has a full set. Uh, don't quote me on that. I have to double-check that one. But... Gesualdo is one that has all 18 or 27 pieces, you know, nine for Holy Thursday, nine for Friday, nine for Saturday, and uh, for six parts. So Ovos Omnes is for six parts. The opening of this piece is so epic. It's just two big chords that are chromatic medians. And it sounds straight out of Lord of the Rings. Tenebrae Choir has a great recording of Gesualdo responsories. And it could be revoiced. If it was too difficult, 
you could revoice a couple of the sections to avoid extreme voice crossings. It's kind of like Poulenc, where some of the voice crossings are, from a practical standpoint, look just unnecessary. But again, thinking back to the beginning of the episode, thinking about melodic line, it does have, it does make sense melodically a lot of the times. And even moments when it doesn't, it's definitely done on purpose. But if that's kind of proving to be too difficult for the group, you can revoice a couple of those sections to make a quote-unquote simpler version. Um, You could also stop after the first section ends to avoid the 16th note runs. It doesn't have to be done super-duper fast, but it's still those might kind of prove a little tricky. And the piece works kind of in a condensed version really well if you stop after that point. Uh, And the baritone part could be done by the tenor twos. So there's a lot of little adjustments like that that you you could implement depending on your the specifications of your ensemble. But that's probably one of the simplest, or the more simple of his tenebrae responsories. Then you get to the difficult level, and a sacred piece that would fall under the difficult category is another of the tenebrae response, responsories, Ecce Cuomodo Moritur. It's for six parts. I don't know if I've had a reaction to a piece of music like I have to this piece. It sounds very nice and smooth and relatively slow. Starts off with this homophonic opening. Then these polyphonic sections kind of creep in. And then all of a sudden it gets to this 16th note rhythm that bounces between the sections really fast. And the first time I heard that, I swore, like, my phone that I was playing it on skipped or something. The file was corrupted. So I went back and listened to it again. I was just alone, by myself, in the car. And I, like, looked around, like, expecting to see someone pop out and say, gotcha. The rhythms are really tricky for that moment. It's super hard, and the chromatic harmonies are out of this world. Tenebrae Choir also has a really cool recording of this one. But man, it is it is something else. It is really cool. And then if you take kind of and hop over into his secular pieces, one madrigal that I particularly love is De Como In Van Sospiro. It's for five part S-S-A-T-B. And it's written in his madrigal style. It's not quite as like all over the place and really complex as some of his other ones, but it's still much more difficult than like an average, even advanced high school choir could do. Um... I mean, again, I'm sure you could. You just, again, have to ask yourself if the time is worth the reward. But something that I love about Jesualdo is if you have one Jesualdo piece on your program, it'll grab the audience's attention for sure. And it's a really cool color piece. 
and could be a cool set of two or three even if you're feeling up for it. Um, he's got several books of madrigals and a lot of them are on CPDL. Again, the editions aren't perfect or great, but they're they're readable and they're doable and they'll work just fine if you're looking for something free. And go check out how just take some time exploring. There's also a lot of great recordings from a lot of different ensembles. For example, um, Collegium Vocale Ghent with Philip Herwega. They have a great album of his sixth book of madrigals. And that's where I first heard the recording of De Como in Van. Um, it's super clean, really great singers. It's really exciting. And you know, there's 23 madrigals in that book of madrigals. So there's all kinds of things. I'll put a link to, um, a link to that album in Apple Music in the show notes on soundofageschoir.com. So that piece, I, I mean, even if you're not going to perform anything by Jeswaldo, you could perform something that's a little bit more, I mean, eh, it's all relative, but a little bit more conservative than Gesualdo from the Italian Renaissance, like something by Monteverdi or Di Lasso or Allegri or anyone. And you can still talk about, though, Gesualdo as the Italians were super passionate and wrote great music. Here's this one guy. By the way, he's a murderer. By the way, he was into witchcraft. By the way, he wrote crazy stuff. And, man, if that doesn't grab someone's attention, I don't know what will. And you can do so many cool things to introduce them to Italian madrigals or Italian sacred music. Um, written sort of after that madrigal style uh, that was known in the, in the late Renaissance. So there's Carlo Gesualdo. Just spend some time in his sound world, and uh, it's just amazing. Thanks for tuning into the show today. I hope you all will consider, as I am speaking to myself as well, consider melodic line of more importance and more of a lens through which we view choral music. Had a great interview with Owen Park. Uh, go check out Jeswaldo 6 and a composer profile on the ever-mysterious Don Carlo Gesualdo. Be sure to like and subscribe, give us five-star rating, and tune in next week for Early Music Monday. <laughs>